Section zero of Wine and Roses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algie Pug. Wine and Roses by Victor J. Daly. Section zero. Memoir by Bertram Stevens. Over thirty years ago, Victor Daly, then a happy, wandering Irish lad, drifted out to Australia. His head was full of old tunes and fragments of poetry. His pocket was nearly empty. The sunshine and freedom of Australia delighted him, and, in careless vagabond fashion, he enjoyed the fleeting pleasures of the day with little thought of the morrow. A good companion, a fellow of infinite jest, Life to him was a gallant spectacle, which he loved to look at, and did not take seriously. Worldly success never tempted him, for he was a Bohemian by birth, but he was also a descendant of a Bardic sect, and he wanted to be a poet. So he wrote verses charged with the melancholy regret of the Celt, for vanished glories and the beauty of remote things, dainty opalescent lyrics with hints of fairy music witty and ironic verse on passing events, and, occasionally, prose sketches. When the pressure of hard realities brought sorrow into his life, he wrote more gaily and vigorously than ever. For twenty years or more he charmed a large number of readers. In this thinly peopled continent, the makers of verse are numerous, and though Daly never appealed to so large an audience as the ballad writers, he was the writer best beloved of the writing clan. Daly travelled through life with few impedimenta, and left behind no papers from which biographical data could be drawn. The story of his life, which follows here, may, therefore, be inaccurate in some particulars. He believed that he was born at Narvan, in the county of Meath, Ireland, on the 5th of September, 1858, and that he was christened Victor James William Patrick. The last two names were dropped early in life. His father, a soldier, went to India with his regiment when Victor was an infant. Falling ill there, he sent for his wife and child, and a few weeks after their arrival, the three left for home. The father died on the voyage. For some years afterwards, Victor lived with his grandparents, in a district associated with one of the great periods in Ireland's history and amongst the people who were intensely patriotic and learned in fairy lore and legend. Memories of the stories he then heard were vividly retained until the end of his life. Some of them were embodied in articles written for the Sydney Freeman's Journal, from which I have taken these passages. In the front garden of my grandmother's house there was a great fairy thorn. They told me, before I began to know much about history, the Queen Meva had planted it there with her own white hands, and indeed anything was possible in that country. Green Ermania, which is now called the Navan Ring, was in with arrow flight of us, and a little more than a mile away was a lonely little tarn in the middle of a field. They called it the King's Stables. The bottom of it was paved with blocks of stone and many relics of the days of old had been found there by adventurous divers. It was, really, the site of the great wrath of the Red Branch Knights. The township, 
is to this day called Creve Row, Red Branch. Not far from it, and under the shadow of McCormick's Bray, is Loch Neshed, clear water, into whose depths no man has ever ventured, because of the great snake that is below guarding the crock of gold, which was the treasure of Cormac MacNessa. When I was a boy, staying out at night, for the love of the thing and the romance of living in a little hazel house of my own, on the side of the Ruth, I saw the Shea, or I thought I saw them, which was the same thing, coming out of the long-choked gates of the castle of Concobar, dressed in green and gold, and riding on little white horses on their way to Loch Neshed. Some distance away, five hundred yards or so, from the Ruth, is a little mound, smooth as a breast of a giantess, that had been ploughed over and sown with corn in the early spring, and grown in the last spring, and yellow in the summer, and thick with whispering tongues and listening ears in the autumn. This was once the speckled house. A Scotchman by the name of Lehman owns the place now, or rather he owned it when I was a boy. My grandfather used to say that if we had our rights, and Cromwell and James I had never been born, the great house would have been ours, and the Lehmans would have been calling at our back door begging some seed potatoes, and the loan of a furrow or two from our fine black soil field in which to plant them. Princes in the land we were in the old time, my grandfather would observe, unless neither of you boys ever forget the fact. I was about eight years old then, and his son, my uncle, was over thirty. My uncle was a sub-centre of Fenians, and I myself was probably the most violent rebel in the whole country of Armagh. Daly's mother, who was of Scottish descent, married again and moved to Devonport, England. Victor, about fourteen at the time, was sent to the Christian Brothers' School in that town. What he valued most afterwards was the privilege to browse at large in the school library, and he then became fired with an enthusiasm for literature. At sixteen he passed a civil service examination and entered the Great Western Railway Company's office in Plymouth. After three years he tired of the work and grew restless. His stepfather had relatives in Adelaide who were childless, and he suggested it might be a good thing for Victor to join them. Australia appeared to the boy's mind as something like a modern high brussel, and he gladly agreed to go. Early in 1878 he reached Sydney. There he left the ship, as he liked the look of the place, and thought Adelaide was within easy reach. His slender stock of money dwindled away, and he took a job as gardener to a clergyman, although he knew nothing of gardening, as the clergyman soon discovered. Before long he got to Adelaide, where he found employment as a correspondence clerk. In Adelaide, Daly experimented a good deal in verse, and some of his rhymes were printed in a local paper. By chance, a love lyric of his was sent to an office client instead of a letter. Remonstrances followed, and Daly left for Melbourne. He had a vague idea of going on to Noumea, but at a race meeting in Melbourne he lost all his money, and had to turn to freelance journalism for a living. For a time he was on the staff, in fact he was all the staff, of a suburban newspaper. Then some of his verses were printed in Melbourne papers, two striking sonnets appeared in the Victorian Review, and Daly became acquainted with the principal writers of the city. 
I met Marcus Clark once, he said later on in a bulletin article. Somebody, whose name I have forgotten, introduced me, and said, with pompous sarcasm, that I was a young aspirant to literature, and that Marcus had better look after his laurels. I felt furiously ashamed and distressed, but Clark nodded kindly, shook my hand, and told me that he would say something to me about literature later on. I inferred, from the tone of his voice, that the information he had to give me would not be pleasant. He never gave it. George Walstub was there, and Garnet Walsh, and Grosvenor Bunster, and, I think, Bob Whitworth and others. The conversation flowed on. I was in paradise, a paradise that smelt of whisky and cigar smoke, and echoed with light-hearted laughter. I had previously read La Vie de Bohème, and I said to myself, This is Bohemia, indeed. And it was. All good fellows. All good writers. Then, in the pause of the conversation, while they were ordering drinks, or lighting their pipes, or something, Marcus Clark turned to me and asked me what I was doing, meaning, I suppose, in that galley. I replied that I was by trade a correspondence clerk, but I was then writing for a suburban paper, and never wanted to be a correspondence clerk again. Some member of the company, who was passing out of the room, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Don't give away your silk purse for a sow's ear. I didn't catch his meaning at the moment, but all the others laughed. Now I know why they laughed. One happy-go-lucky acquaintance of this time, Larry Spruan, the half-Galahad, half-Don Juan, of a poem in A Dawn and a Dusk, lured daily away from writing suburban leaders on European politics, which must have made the iron knees of Bismarck knock with terror. Spruan was off to prospect for gold, and promised to send for Daly as soon as he had good news. For a week or two, I believe, Daly sold Japanese pottery at the Melbourne Exhibition of 1880. The profit was magnificent, but the tenure of office all too brief. Soon, news came from Spruan at Queenvian, New South Wales. Struck it rich, come at once. Daly, with a friend named Caddy, took the train as far north as their funds would allow, and then tramped. They had a number of adventures before they arrived at Queenbeyan and found that Spruan had disappeared. Daly got a billet on a local paper and stayed about six months. Moving on to Sydney, he worked for the expiring Sydney Punch and the newly established Bulletin. He met Kendall, whose poems he greatly admired, and mixed with a little group of artists and writers who were as an oasis in the desert of money-making people. Writing of them, twenty-five years afterwards, he remembered them all as jolly fellows. Everybody about town seemed to know everybody else in those days. There were, of course, some of them who did not like each other. But I think that, on the whole, there was more geniality on the streets than there is now. I believe also that there was more real camaraderie amongst musicians, artists, pressmen, and even actors than there is at the present day. Possibly this was because they were all young, in spirit, if not in years, and doing fairly well without making slaves of themselves. Somewhere about 1885, Daly went back to Melbourne and wrote, with varying fortune, for most of the papers there, as well as for the Bulletin. In 1898, 
it was arranged to publish a selection of his verses, and in that year he returned to Sydney in connection with the book. At dawn and dusk was moderately successful. Australian reviewers, almost without exception, praised it highly, and many predicted that it would be warmly received in Britain. But it made no impression there. While Daly's work had a unique place in the regard of Australians, it was, not unnaturally, slighted by British reviewers because of the absence of local colour. By that time, Daly had ceased to care for fame. He had no illusions about the place of his verses in the pageant of poetry. He was satisfied if his writings would earn him enough to live upon, and glad that they had introduced him to the society he liked. Many times, in earlier years, he had meditated a big work in verse that would express all he had thought about things in general. He began one when staying on the Hawkesbury River in 1884, and the result was printed as fragments of a frustrated poem. I yet shall sing my splendid song. The world is young, the world is strong, he cried, and tried again, but found that he was incapable of sustained effort. Only for brief periods had he tried to do any regular work apart from literature. After At Dawn and Dusk was published, a place was obtained for him in a government office in Sydney, but the adding of perpendicular columns of figures and making him agree with horizontal columns was an agony not to be borne. That way madness lies, he said, and walked out. From the conventional standpoint, his life was a failure. Yet he had practical wisdom and respect for conventions. If he had tried, he might have succeeded, as many lesser men have done. He never cared to try. Life seemed too precious to waste in striving for money or position, and his temperament demanded freedom from routine. He came to know that a bitter price had to be paid for freedom, and he paid it without grumbling. Daly was as unhappy as Charles Lamb if long away from the city, and a vagabond life in town is without the purifying influences which the fresh hand of nature can bestow. In the city there are many taverns, and at times daily touched the mire. Yet he remained unsoiled, for he was clean at heart, and, apart from the irregularities of Bohemia, he had no vices. Many stories, grotesque and humorous, have been told about him and in time to come the daily of legend may be a figure resembling the beloved vagabond of Locke's romance. There was nothing riotous in Daly's nature. He confessed that he had never had a grand passion, and seldom experienced profound emotion. His colour sense was not opulent, but he thrilled to the beauty of delicate shades, and preferred the faint green dawn to the sunrise, the dusk to the sunset. His talk was excellent, he touched any subject of conversation with a gleaming fancy, and would risk much for a jest. Of his desultory reading, he remembered the anecdotes, the picturesque images, the magic phrases, and unconsciously echoed some of them in his own lines. He was a true votary of old-world romance, and some of its glamour he cast over the continuous stream of bright, shining verse which flowed from his pen. Finally pure, but thin when it was seen running side by side with that broader and more turbulent current which was coloured by Australian soil. Daly's health failed in 1902, 
and friends enabled him to take a voyage to the South Sea Islands in the following year. In 1905 it was found that he had consumption. He went to Orange on the New South Wales tableland. He was lonely there, got no better, and returned to Sydney in the spring. For months he saw the end coming. His buoyant spirit rode like a cork on a sea of troubles, and he jested in the face of death. He died at Waitara, near Sydney, on the 29th of December, 1905, and was buried at Waverley, not far from the dust of those other Celtic spirits which have enriched Australia, Kendall, Daly, and Dennehy. Light-hearted, brave, generous, but weak of will, the man was finer than his work, and his work is good. End of section zero.